Father, we thank you for your word, the gift that it is to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are not only the word yourself, but you've given us your word in the Bible. And we thank you that we can come to it, we can be shaped by it this morning, we can be challenged and encouraged by it. Lord, I pray that you would encourage and build up the men especially this morning. Lord, help us to see clearly what it is that you've called us to. Help us to come to you in our sin and our shame, to be forgiven, to be washed clean, set off in a new direction. Transform us, Lord. Help us to be men of God, husbands who honor you, fathers who honor you, and lead our families well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been working through the book of Ephesians throughout the summer. We have, I think, five weeks left until we end up at the end of Ephesians. We're going to take this week and the next three weeks in order to do a mini-series inside of Ephesians specifically focused on family relationships and how all of us, no matter our role in our family, we are under God. And so we're going to talk about men and husbands being under God wives, women being under God, parents and kids being under God, and then what Paul refers to as masters and servants being under God, and we're going to extrapolate that to our modern day situation. We're going to talk about employees, employers, uh, teachers, students, those kind of relationships. Before we get into that, though, let me remind you that we are working through a memory passage this summer. Now, I've kind of forgotten about it the last few weeks, and I apologize for that. So we are, right now, we're focusing on the, the second to the last and the third to last verse of the passage. It is the core of the book of Ephesians, in my opinion, and there's one verse after it that is dependent on these two verses, but what I want to do is read through it with you guys right now and then try to recite it by memory. So this is Ephesians 2, it's 8 and 9, and Caleb, would you put it up on the screen, please? All right. So, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's do that again with it on the screen, and then we'll take it off. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Take it off the screen, see if we can do it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right, so next week we'll add in our final verse there, which tells us that while we are not saved by works, which we just read, we are called then after salvation to a life of good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us. For most of us, part of those good works that God has called us to live in response to our salvation is wrapped up in family relationships. So let's keep that in mind as we dive into our passage in Ephesians today. If you'd like to find the passage and get ready, we're looking at Ephesians 5, 21 as our starting point. It's on page 978 in the Pew Bible. Let me start by saying this. Families are in trouble. Maybe your family's doing great, thank you, but families in general are in trouble. God designed humans to live in families, 
from the beginning, his design was to bring a man and a woman together in marriage for a lifelong union, to make them one, and from that union to bring children that are then raised by the mother and father to walk with God. In recent decades, that plan for the family in the United States and much of the Western world has been degrading. Really, it started ramping up that degradation after World War II. But in the last few years, we have seen an unprecedented attack on God's intention for humanity, for sexuality, for marriage, and the family. I don't mean to exaggerate when I say this, but that our entire culture seems to be flirting with disaster as we reject what God has designed as good. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I shared with you a statistic of what percentage of Generation Z, so think young adults and teenagers, what percentage of Generation Z self-identify as somewhere as the LGBTQ+, or whatever the, the whole spectrum is? How many, what's the percentage? According to Gallup... 20%. One out of five. Now that is absolutely amazing to me. It has doubled since the generation before, which doubled since the generation before that. Now if that holds true, that marks the end of our society. I don't just mean in like a moral and spiritual sense. I mean just biologically, physically, society that doesn't produce enough babies collapses in disaster. It's happened repeatedly throughout the world. And when you have people of the same gender together, they can't make babies. This is a big deal. And it's not the way that God designed families to work. If we go back to Genesis 127, we see this. First chapter of the Bible. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So God created and called humans, brought them together, as we see in chapter 2 of Genesis, in the first marriage, one woman, one man, for life, to make babies and to raise them to love God. That is the design for family. Throughout most of history, that's what we've done. But in recent years, we seem to have forgotten that as a society. Today, in the next three weeks, we're going to walk through marriage, parenting, and other family-related relationships, and how all of that is under the authority of God. Let me again remind you of the special conference that Gospel Baptist is doing. It will parallel and complement greatly our little mini-series on the family as you get to hear from somebody else speak for a day about family relationships. So on the 17th of this month, please consider joining them for that. I hope to be there myself. All right, so Ephesians 21. This is on page 978 in your pew Bible. And we're going to start with verse 21. You'll notice just how it's laid out in most English Bibles that 21 is the end of a paragraph, and then there's usually like a section break with a header after that. Now, that is a little bit unfortunate because verse 21 is not just the concluding sentence or thought from the paragraph before. It's also the beginning and really the foundation of what comes after it. So we, we do ourselves a, dis a disservice when we make that break there, when it really just kind of flows all together. 
So let me read for you the last few verses from last week. Add in 21, and then we'll eventually start into our new passage. So I'm going to start with verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, where we stopped last week. And it just continues, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That idea of submitting provides the, the cap or the the summary, the overarching, the fence, we might say, for all the stuff that came before it. So all those instructions are within the, the fence of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. But it also provides then the main verb moving forward for everything that comes after it. We as Christians are called to submit to each other. Not in a false humility, not in a self-abusive way like, I'm such a loser, everybody's better than me. No. God has created each of us differently, and he puts us in different levels of authority and responsibility, leadership, and all that stuff. But we are to voluntarily submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. We're all under Christ, and we voluntarily place ourselves, we might say, put others' concerns, their, their desires, their needs ahead of our own. That's, that's how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, to consider others more important or more significant than yourself. That is the call for all of us as Christians in all of our Christian relationships. It is, as one author put it, a race to the bottom. Whereas the world is constantly saying, I'm going to try to rise up above somebody else. Christians, we are to be serving and racing each other to the bottom. So let's read verse 21 and then go on to what comes after it. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Since Paul starts by addressing the wives, we might expect that our series would go wives first and then husbands, but we're going to switch it around. We're going to deal with the husbands first because, as we will see, husbands, you are called to love your wives in such a way that lays a foundation, that sets the tone for the marriage and for the family relationship. So we'll come back to what we just read next week. But for right now, let's read the rest of the passage and then we'll break it into chunks. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. <clears throat> Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects 
her husband. So I hope one of the first things you notice about this passage is that Paul takes a lot more time addressing the husbands than he does the wives. Now, interestingly, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter addresses many of these same things, and he takes a different bent. He spends more time addressing the women than the men, and he uses almost the same language in many different ways. So looking for something to read this week, I would encourage you to read Philippians 2 to look at the idea of mutual submission, and 1 Peter particularly uh, chapter 3, if you're looking for contrast or how Paul talks about these relationships compared to how Peter talks about these relationships. The Bible presents a difference between men and women and between husbands and wives. Men, the Bible gives you a different kind of authority and responsibility than your wife. It's not because you're smarter. In fact, Probably most of us in this room, if we're men, we have wives who are smarter than us, right? should hear some amens, but I don't hear any. All right, I got, got an amen. Good, jo- good job, Hank. Yep. It's not, it's not because you're bigger and stronger. It's not because God's a chauvinist and he likes men more than he likes women. But it's because God has designed a certain order into creation. It's part of his good order. And as we'll see... It reflects a greater reality. It's more than just marriage. There are differences between men and women. It's not by accident. It is on purpose. Now, I've been giving away some books recently. This one is a result of an archaeological dig. This was written in the 90s. So this is Larry Crabb, Men and Women Enjoying the Difference. It's a great book, yeah. This might actually be Jen's copy that I've been giving away. Okay, well, I had two copies, and one of them was marked up. This one's not marked up. So uh, if you'd like to read a good book from ancient history on men and women enjoying the difference, Dr. Larry Crabb here, I'm just going to leave this here. You can grab it after the service. It is yours to keep or to give along to somebody else. Men and women are different. We're designed to be different. We're designed to complement each other. Think of puzzle pieces that that fit together in order to form the puzzle that God designed. God has chosen to put the primary responsibility of leadership in the home on the husband. Therefore, men, God looks to you to set the tone to determine the trajectory of your home, of your family. He tasks us with leadership, and He's given us that authority. It's a high calling, and it is a heavy responsibility. Let's look at this in chunks. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, do you feel the weight of those verses? You are called to love your wife, which you hopefully already do, but God gives us a standard or a measurement for that love, a target that we're shooting for. You and I are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That is a very high standard. That should make you shake in your boots some. Especially when he goes on to describe what he means by that. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what that love looks like. He gave himself for her. Who, who has more love than the person who lays down his life for another? Jesus himself says that in John 15, 13. He says, greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And he goes on the rest of that chapter to call his disciples friends. And say, I'm giving my life up for you. And that is the amazing good news of the gospel, that we deserved death because of our sin, but Jesus took our sin and went to the cross to die in our place out of love for us. He gave up his life in order to love us. And then he uses that as an example and say, husbands, that's how you are to love your wives. You say, well, my wife, she, she's just always on me. She's always nagging me. She's, always, she's, she's so annoying. Think, think about what we were like when Jesus gave his life for us. Did he wait for us to get all cleaned up and presentable? Not at all. One of my favorite verses, Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, while we were ugly, while we were rebellious, while we were contentious, Christ died for us. And that is the calling for us as husbands too. Does this simply mean Guys, you got to take a bullet for your wife if someone's coming to shoot you. Well, it, it does mean that. But like dudes in Western Ohio, we know that already, right? You take the bullet for your woman. But what would it mean for you to give up your life while you still are alive? How can you live sacrificially as a husband or a father while still retaining your life here on earth. We are selfish by nature. And I think, like just anecdotally, as I, as I think about all the, the different families that I know, I, I think in general, it's safe to say, men, we tend to be more selfish than our wives. I don't know if that's a special result of the fall in us or conditioning in society or whatever it is, but we tend to default to selfishness faster than our wives do. That could work out in all kinds of ways in your family. It could have to do with watching sports. Like, don't bother me. Don't allow anybody in the room. I'm, I'm watching the game. Keep the kids quiet and away, right? It could have to do with work. I'm going to work way too much. I'm going to ignore and neglect my family, but I'm providing for them so they should just be grateful about it. Or maybe it has to do with the weekend. Like, see, honey, you get the kids up, you get them to church, I'm going to sleep in, or I'm going golfing. That comes more naturally for us as men than it tends to come for our wives. But men of God, you and I are called to live lives as examples of love and self-sacrifice, following the perfect example of our Lord Jesus Christ. We could just stop the sermon there and say, we're going to reflect on how we as men have failed Come to Christ in confession. Ask him to help us move forward. But there's more to the passage. So let's go ahead and read it. Again, 
Starting with verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Paul here describes the purpose of Jesus giving up his life. It's not simply, it's not only, and as amazing as it is, not only to save our souls for eternity, get us into heaven instead of hell. It's also to sanctify us now, to make us holy. He gave up his life to sanctify us, to make us more holy. We're to be progressing towards holiness, becoming more like Jesus. And that's made possible not by our efforts, but by the death of Christ, according to these verses. He died to make us more holy, to sanctify us. Now, husbands, you have a role to play in this plan of sanctification. Yes, Christ is sanctifying you, but he also is calling you to aid and help partner in the sanctification of your wife. Because this is all one stream, this is all one thought. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words. All one flowing thing. And so, Guys, we have been given the responsibility and the calling of, in a special way, somehow helping, aiding in the sanctification of our wives. Now, in a sense, that's true for all Christian relationships. We're to be helping sanctify each other, encouraging each other, confronting each other in sin, building each other up. All, you know, all that happens, but somehow, in these verses, God is saying there's a special role for the husband in the sanctification of the wife. Men, we are to be leading our wives spiritually. And Paul touches on a couple things here. This, this sanctification comes to us, according to these verses, in a couple different ways. We're, we're washed by the water and by the word. Now, the water part, I think, is probably talking about baptism, although some argument about that, but baptism and the entrance into the church through that rite of baptism. But what about washing with the Word? What could that mean? Well, Jesus himself is the Word of God. We see that in John 1. But he also gives us the Word of God as the Bible. And it is meant to be used to sanctify us. So if Paul is calling men to step up, to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and he mentions this idea of washing with the word, I think we're meant to understand, guys, that part of our role is to help lead in the sanctification of our wives with the word of God. Now that doesn't mean you've got to sit down with your wife and do this one-hour in-depth Bible study every day. Right? You could do that, especially if you're retired, you got time to do that, great, go for it. But I'd say at a minimum, it means that you are leading by example, that you are intentionally spending time in and being shaped by the Word of God and leading by example in that for your wife. Let me suggest that it goes beyond your wife, that it goes to your kids and your grandkids too that God has given you that responsibility and authority, and it's a privilege to partner with Christ in it. 
Maybe you don't know where to start with that. Maybe you say, I'm clueless. It's okay to be clueless. Just don't stay clueless. Right? So here's a suggestion. I've given you guys a suggestion before. I know some of you have started taking it seriously, and I hope many more of you will. Do your best to have dinner together as much as possible. When you get done with dinner, read a section of the Bible. Just pick a book and start working through it. Read a section of the Bible and talk with your family about it. Ask them some questions. Maybe you've got to read it beforehand and read some notes out of a study Bible so you know what you're talking about, and you can instruct them. But just take a few minutes, read the Bible together, discuss it, pray with your family. If you're musical, maybe sing a song together, and then break and head off to whatever it is you're going to next. Building that tradition into your family provides for you a repeated opportunity to aid in the sanctification of your wife and your children through the washing of the Word. The first time I saw this in action was actually in Ireland a few years ago. Jen and I were in Ireland, and it was Sunday morning. We picked a church to go worship at, which was kind of a weird experience in Northern Ireland to try to figure out which team do you choose. We chose to go to what was called the Devrock Reformed Presbyterian Church. There's a picture of the building here. It's out in the middle of nowhere, like really in the middle of nowhere. We got there, friendly people get in for the worship service. There's a couple very unique things about this particular congregation. Uh, One, they, they sing only the Psalms from the Old Testament. So they got 150 songs to choose from for the entire life of their church. And they sing from a split hymnal. So the pages are all slit, so you can select a tune from the top part and a psalm from the bottom part and just match them up. And so the song leader simply says, in this case, this particular uh, situation here, we're going to sing Psalm 103, and uh, we're going to sing it to the tune, I thought I had the name of it written here, but uh, the tune of Dunlap's Creek. If you want to look it up, it's kind of a nice tune. You can find a couple renditions of it on, on YouTube. Dunlap's Creek, Psalm 103. Now, the second surprising thing about this congregation is that even though they're not used to visitors, especially visitors from another country, when we were talking to people afterwards, one of their elders and his wife invited us over for lunch at their house. And so we went over and we had lunch. It was a very good, very good lunch, very Irishy kind of lunch. And uh, then afterwards, he pulls out his Bible and he explains that when they gather for meals, they do a time of family worship and and Bible study together. So he reads through the next chunk of what they're reading through, and we discuss it for a little while, and he prays for us, and then we're done. This senior couple had been doing that for decades. They did it with their kids. Kids are all grown out on their own now, but they continue to do it now as empty nesters, and probably with their grandkids, when the grandkids come to visit. It was beautiful, and it was simple. As we look at the passage that we're reading right here, Paul tells us that Christ is sanctifying us, purifying us, washing us with the water and the word, so that he can present himself to us as a pure spotless bride. For us guides, guys, that's a little weird to think about, but in the New Testament, one of the main metaphors, ideas of the church is that the church is the bride of Christ. 
If we turn to Revelation 21, 1 through 2, we see this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Two chapters before that, we have what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God. There's this big marriage supper party that celebrates the end of death, the unity, the perfect unity of Christ and his church, and it's spoken of as a marriage. If we go back to Ephesians, verse 28. In the same way, or in the same way that Christ loves us, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and Hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul he appeals to this completely natural, normal, easy, comes naturally to us idea of loving and caring for ourselves. He says, I'm going to take this in a spiritual direction, but first you've got to understand, you all take care of yourselves. Right? Nobody is intentionally harming themselves, he's saying to his audience here. Therefore, recognize that you and your wife are one, and if you, harm your, if you harm your wife, you harm yourself. If you love your wife, you love yourself. Now, he, he could have taken a different approach to this. He could have gone back to Matthew 22, where Jesus is asked what the great commandment is, and he responds with two. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest, great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul could have said, look, your wife is obviously your closest neighbor. Jesus says, love your neighbor, therefore love your wife. But no, he takes it more intimately than that. And he says, you guys are one. You are united together. You think back to the words in Genesis, which are quoted in verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is not simply talking about the physical reality, the consummation of the marriage of coming together. In some way, and I don't know how to describe it to you guys, a man and a woman in marriage somehow become one. It's not my word. That's God's word. That is why divorce hurts so much. Because God makes something one, and we unone what God has made one. We, we tear it apart. And it wasn't meant to be torn apart. Paul says, if you love your wife, bonus, you're actually loving yourself too. It's like he appeals to our selfishness for it. We don't understand this. We, don't, we can't figure out or put words to this idea of becoming one, and yet we're still two different people. It's not like we've morphed into a single person, and yet we are one. And he, he refers to this as a mystery. Thank you, Paul. I'm glad that he couldn't figure it out either. He says this mystery is profound. And then he says, verse 32, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, this is a significant change 
and how he's talking about it. He's not simply saying, Jesus loves the church, and husbands, you should love your wives in the same way. He's saying the unity of husband and wife is a mystery and somehow refers to the unity of Christ and the church. What we see in this whole process, this, this whole paragraph, is that he, he's not simply saying look to the love of Christ as, as a good, happy example. He's saying the love of Christ for the church is the basis for marriage. That the love of Christ for the church is really the form, the, the model for what marriage is. We tend to think of it backwards. Like we want to understand marriage, we can kind of think about the Christ and church relationship, and maybe that'll help us some. He said, no, like the primary thing here is Christ and the church. Actually became reality before marriage shows up. Because before time... God had planned in his perfect providence that he would create humans, that humans, he knew they would fall, and that the rescue mission of Jesus coming to save his church out of the fallen world, that was all planned before there was a need for it. The love relationship of Christ for his church was decided before there was human marriage. And so the primary thing in this passage is the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is the secondary thing. The bigger reality is Christ and the church. The lesser reality is what we think of as marriage. I don't know about you guys, but that puts on me a sense of the weight, the heaviness, the significance of marriage. If Marriage is meant to be a reflection, meant to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And I realize I've, really, I've thought of marriage too flippantly. I've thought too little of marriage. That this relationship of a husband and a wife is supposed to picture the, mar- the marriage relationship of Christ and the church, well, that raises it up to a completely different level. A few weeks ago, I shared with you a quote from Pastor Vodi Bakum, his definition of love. It was this, love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Kaylin, would you put that up on the screen, please? Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. He said, love is not emotion, it's a choice, an act of the will, it's volitional, but It is accompanied by emotion. It's not unfeeling. It's not robotic. And its purpose is the good of the other. Leads to action on behalf of its object. I love that definition. He also has a really good way of framing for us in a memorable way what marriage is about. He says this, Marriage was designed by God for two purposes, procreation and illustration. So there's more to marriage than that, but these are two primary purposes. God designed humanity in such a way that we, he brings together a man and woman in marriage, and they are to have children, and they are to raise them in the kingdom of God. That's the procreation part of it. The illustration part is what we've been talking about mostly today. That God designed human marriage to illustrate, to picture 
to show us what the relationship between Christ and the church is like. There is the sense of our marriage should be like Christ and the church. There's also the sense of if you see marriage the way it really is supposed to be, you do see the relationship between Christ and the church. So guys, what do we do with this? I mean, we can feel a lot of guilt, shame, regret. We can even feel anger. Like, I wasn't raised. Nobody told me this. Like, I, I wasted so much of my life not knowing what marriage is supposed to be. Why didn't somebody tell me? You could be angry at God or angry at me for saying, actually, here's the standard, and that could really tick you off. I understand that. You may feel overwhelmed. Like, where do I even start? Or maybe it's just too late. Maybe I've been going, I've been going too long in this one direction. I can't change directions now. But this is a serious business that God calls us to. I want to end with some encouragement for you. Maybe you don't know what to do next to grow as a man of God, as a husband, as a father. I know that you know some areas that need to be worked on. They're running through your brain right now. You know what they are. Pick one of them, surrender it to God, confess your sin, throw yourself on his mercy and say, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to grow in this, but I know that you want to transform me in this. Please work in me in this. It's a good place to start. God delights to work in you. And he's excited and eager to see you become more like Christ, more of a man of God, more of the husband and father that honors God, loves his wife, and loves his children well. If you don't know where to start, if you don't know what to do, or you don't know what God is doing in you, then remember what he's already done. That song that we've sung the last three weeks, think about that line in the chorus, I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. That is good news for us. Especially in the practical, day-to-day, heavy, weighty things, the idea of living as a man of God, and we don't know what to do, we don't know what God's doing in us, but we can look back at what God has done, we can rest in the truth of the gospel. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion together. We will remember and proclaim the death of Christ for us. Let me remind you of something that Jesus did on the night when he first instituted what we would call the Lord's Supper, communion. This is John 13, 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into his heart, into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
So the night that he's betrayed, the night that he serves them that last supper, Jesus, God in the flesh, chooses to take on the role of a servant. If you read Philippians 2 this week, like I suggested earlier today, you will see the same language where Paul describes Jesus as humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant. We tend to think of that as like dying on the cross in order to serve and love us. Absolutely. But it also happened a few hours before that when he literally got on his knees like a servant and washed the feet of his disciples. One of whom would betray him in a matter of minutes and the rest of him who would really let him down. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He washed them with water. And then he washed them with the word. Because for the next four and a half chapters in John, he just keeps talking and talking and talking. Last chance to give you guys as much as I possibly can because I'm about to be betrayed. And he fills them with all kinds of amazing truth. He washes them with the word. He does that on the night of his betrayal. And that is the model given to us, men, and how we love our wives. It's a high calling, but you can rest in the fact that Jesus has gone before you, that Jesus has done the work, that Jesus has washed and continues to wash you with the water and with the word, that he doesn't call you to sanctify your wife, but that he is calling you to partner with his sanctification of your wife. He has given himself for your sanctification and for hers. Let's pray. Father, as we come to celebrate communion together, we are mindful of the amazing sacrifice of Jesus, how he gave up himself to love us, to call us together as a church, to designate us as his bride and to present us to him one day, pure, spotless. We are not pure and spotless now. We confess to you our sin, our shortcoming, our failures, our rebellion against you. Some of us, even this morning, we've heard your words and our hearts want to rebel against that. We confess that to you, Lord. I ask you to change us. Lord, I pray for this congregation that you would strengthen the marriages and the family. Lord, that you would embolden and empower and humble the men, the husbands, fathers, that we would love our wives as you, Lord Jesus, loved us, the church, gave up your life to save us and to sanctify us. As we reflect, Lord, would you bring to mind the things that you need us to be bringing back to you in confession, repentance? Would you help us to see clearly where we are and what you're calling us to and to know what some of the next steps are as we walk in humble obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.